What's up, guys? Mark here. Um, this is going to be a bit of a different kind of episode than we usually do. This is the audio from the Q&A video we posted on the new YouTube channel about two weeks ago. Um, it was Q&A from Dylan the Destroyer's second annual Autism Awareness Fundraiser. Um, we were asked to MC the Q&A and... Uh, Considering there's only two of us, I filmed it and recorded the audio, and Jared hosted the Q&A, and he did a great job, which you guys will hear. Uh, kudos to you, Jared, if you're hearing this right now. It was in Dalton, Ohio on April 27th, 2019. The Q&A consisted of Madman Sawyer Fulton. Uh, he was in Sanity in NXT. Uh, I guess he got injured, and they released him. He did some indie circuit stuff for a while, and he actually just debuted on TNA Impact. I don't know if they call it TNA or just Impact Wrestling now. He debuted on Impact Wrestling a few weeks ago, like just a week or so before this happened, I think. Maybe even not even a week. Also, One Man Gang, Mr. Insanity Toby Klein, hardcore legend, former Olympian Bob Roop has a lot to say. Um, he even brings up John Oliver and trying to create a wrestler's union, a pro wrestler's union, which I thought was interesting. We clipped that out too, if you'd like to check out the YouTube channel. And legendary tag team Demolition, Axe and Smash of Demolition. It was a hell of a Q&A. I enjoyed filming it. I enjoyed hearing it. I loved how One Man Gang, Bob Roop, and Demolition had like, uh, a camaraderie thing going on. They kind of were just like bouncing off each other with the stories. It was great. And then uh, Madman Fulton and Toby Klein, they have a little bit of a history. I guess recently uh, Toby Klein just lost the title to Fulton. Spoiler alert. Um, Look that up on YouTube too, I'm sure. Uh, Anything with Necro Butcher is insane with Toby Klein. Check that out too. Yeah, we, we talk all about this. Me and Jared give our, our take on, on this event um, in the last episode, episode 13 of Ohio WrestleCast, if you want to check that out too. I won't bore you anymore. Again, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to see the video versions of all these things. Not sure if I could say that enough. Not sure if people know it's out there. Need the subscribers. Trying to reach 100 or more so we can get our custom YouTube channel Earl which will be very helpful for all of us. And yeah, without further ado, here's the Q&A. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, everybody, for coming out and joining us today. We appreciate you we have an incredible panel here today, as, as you guys know. I'll uh, start by giving everybody a brief introduction, and we're going to uh, open up Q&A for everybody. So, to my immediate left, the former NXT superstar, current Impact Wrestling superstar. This guy is going to be on your TV screen for a long, long time, ladies and gentlemen, Madman Fulton. Sitting next to him, I'm happy to say a close personal friend of mine, this guy has been the IW Mid-South King of Deathmatch champion. He is a CZW Hall of Famer. Traveled the globe, all over the world, bringing live entertainment to all of you. Over a 20-year career, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Insanity, Toby Klein. 
man that needs no introduction, but I'm gonna do my best anyway. <laughs> Traveled all over the country, world-class championship wrestling. I did do in Mid-South, and of course, in the WWF, he, on top of cards, all over the country, drawing big, big houses, former United States champion, <laughs> former member of the Twin Towers, ladies and gentlemen, the one man gang. So much respect for just, just reading up on his legendary career. This gentleman was a 1968 Olympic Greco Roman wrestler. He also traveled all the territories, uh, very, very influential in what he's done. Uh, Tennessee, Florida, on top, everywhere he's gone. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Root. WWF Tag Team Champions. These guys were on top of the cards for WrestleMania. Um, legendary matches against the Heart Foundation. Legendary matches against the Rockers. Powers of Pain. Done it all in the business. Uh, what about Twin Towers? Twin Towers were pretty good too, weren't they? We had legendary matches. They beat the crap out of them. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Henry. Again, we have a great panel here, guys, and we're going to open up a Q&A session to all of you. It's first come, first serve. Throw your hand up. I'll come out your way. And you have a question for any of our great guests? We got all night, so well. Maybe they have all night. Uh, any questions you guys have for them? Again, just throw your hand up, and we'll get started. You, sir. Um, uh, by the way, sorry guys, we have no microphones tonight. This is live entertainment, so be audible for everybody to hear. Uh, if you'd like to, stand up and say hello and, and ask your questions. Hi, I'm Jeff Klinger. I, I like watch wrestling, and um, once in a while, um, how long have you guys been wrestling? Is that a question for everyone? Yeah. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Uh, I'll start off. Uh, I've been wrestling for eight and a half years now, and I got my start uh, in Mansfield with Jimmy Lee at ASWA. Uh, 1996, I started with Jimmy Lee, Jimmy Lee at the ASWA in Mansfield. I retired last year. Last uh, April was my last match, but uh, uh, I'm coming out of retirement for June. How many times are we supposed to come out of retirement? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm listening to my first return from retirement in June, so. Uh, I started in 1976 uh, at the ripe age of 16 years old. <laughs> and uh, I wrestled through the mid-2000s or whatever, you know, I'm not sure to a year or whatever that is, but it's quite a good bit. And couldn't take it no more. These guys beat me up too much. <laughs> Uh, I started in 1969. Uh, I know you're doing the math there. Well, how, how's this guy sitting here? About you know, have <laughs> somebody to prop him up. Uh, I had a relatively short career, uh, active career, and just to give you an idea, maybe of what the uh, business is like. 15 years of my first 15 years, I might have had eight days a year off. Eight, eight days. We worked on birthdays, our kids' birthdays, our wife's our anniversaries, Christmas, New Year's, holidays, we, we were at work. 
And uh, I have a relatively short career. I worked straight for 15 years, but in that time, I put in enough time to have a 40-year career. And look, at, I'm here, right? I'm still in the business 50 years later. fraternity that millions and millions and millions of people around the world would love to be involved in, but it's a nice tight fraternity that very few of us are. I uh, started in 1981. I uh, was trained in by Eddie Sharkey, and it was uh, me and the Road Warriors and Rick Rude were all in the same camp. And we didn't know anything about wrestling. We beat the crap out of each other all the time. And it was like, thank God I got into the wrestling business and got away from those three guys. They were killing but anyways, uh, yeah, our last match was a couple years ago against the Rock and Roll Express. Nice. And I could never get him out of the ring. I was screaming, Billy, you gotta get out of the ring. Your wife is gonna kill me. She said that she didn't want you in the I, ring anymore. I was just afraid I couldn't make it to the room. Anyways, I got, a, I got a new knee, so that's when we finally got out of the ring. All right. Thanks. Great question, man. You, sir, in the back. What's up, guys? My name is Zach. Um, I wanted to know this question for the whole panel. Do you guys have any pre-match rituals that you had to do every time before you went out? Uh, I mean, for me right now, uh, like, I don't like to be around people as I'm getting ready for my match. Uh, I take a lot of time and really focus on a lot of my stretching and getting myself ready for matches. Um, so I kind of like to separate off by myself a bit until right before my music ends. Final answer? Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> I really don't think so. I talk to the kids. I have five boys, so I'll chat with them a little before I go out there. Uh, there's two sides to my career. You guys want me to get real honest? There's two sides to my career. In 2013, I became sober. And um, from probably 1998 to 2013, a 15-year stretch of my career, I was heavily involved with drugs and I used opiates before every match. And it became a pre-match ritual for me to hide in the car out in the parking lot and consume a large amount of opiates before I even went into the building to perform. And uh, it almost killed me. I went to uh, drug and alcohol rehab for it in 2012 and uh, I'm now a drug and alcohol counselor as my full-time job. So up until 2013, yeah, my pre-match ritual was to get wasted before I even went out there.
sobriety, not not the, <laughs> yeah. not the drug use before the happy ending on that one. My ritual was. Uh, I didn't really have too many rituals. I put the boots on the same way every night. I do my right, then my left. I never changed that up. For some reason, that was like, uh, you know, I felt something bad happen if I changed it up. And then when I was working with demolition, I'd go throw myself into the brick wall about a dozen times. <laughs> to get my body ready for, you know, the demolition double axe in the back of the back for two dozen times, you know, so that was What a, we what a weenie. <laughs> And uh, Mr. Axe there, after two dozen of them, he'd go, no, we want some more, and he'd do another two dozen. So after I'd done about three dozen push-ups, I was blowing up about the puke, we want some more. <laughs> uh, but I, I really didn't have too many. Uh, you know, I put the tape on the same way every night. I didn't change. Basically, whatever I was, I didn't change it at all because I felt, for some reason, I just felt that was the way it had to be every night, every night, every night. You know, just that, that was just the way I was. And then uh, I was like him. I'd go out by myself some and kind of stay by myself and, you know, and think about the match a little bit and kind of, you know, just, like I said, throw myself in the wall and get ready for these guys. But uh, <laughs> that was about it. Well, if uh, our, our accepted practice when I was uh, active was to be at the matches an hour before they started, everybody. Uh, that wasn't always possible. It was, mishaps on the road, the car breaking down, or whatever, getting a late start perhaps. Uh, if I had plenty of time, uh, probably a combination of, of what you've heard, uh, making sure I'm loose. Uh, but another thing, depending on who I was going out there with, uh, if it was not going to be any problem, uh, then I didn't worry about it because um, you get to, now, this is later after, say, seven years. The first seven years, until you actually know what you're doing in the ring, uh, under just about any circumstance, um, you might be, you might spend more time previewing uh, possible coming attractions that aren't going to be so much fun. But uh, after that, you, you get to a stage where uh, you, you feel like you can handle whatever comes up in the ring. And you have to ad-lib, you have to, uh, uh, you have to uh, sometimes change directions, and, and, uh, and that's, that was what called, was called being an artisan or a craftsman in our trade. It's not, uh, uh, even, even uh, uh, and we've all gone through different stages. I, what you're talking about, old pal, is, is I did that myself, a character called Neha Singh, where all we did was was kick and, and punch and stomp and uh, uh, it didn't have much, it had no subtlety at all. But uh, the, the character was supposed to also switch back to Bob Roop, who was going to be like classical wrestling. That part never got developed. But uh, if I was going in the ring against somebody I thought might want to uh, get cute, I would uh, think of certain strategies to either head that off before it got started or to deal with it when it did. But most of the time, again, uh, we, you, you know, you go out there with the comfort that uh, you can handle whatever's coming up. That was, so I, <laughs> I made a real long answer. No, I really didn't have it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall any. 
any particular things that we did on a routine basis. Other than we did stretch out a little we had bit to stretch out because we had to chase him around. Oh, geez. <laughs> we always had to talk about how we're not going to laugh when these guys are in the rain. Oh, they're the funniest guys you've ever seen there. Uh, what does that mean? Like, you the funniest guys we ever seen. What do you mean, my outfit? What was you? What are you talking no, about? No, the stuff that you and the boss man would do in the ring, we just laughed our heads off, and you didn't want to. Well, everybody couldn't be like that. You know, well, everybody couldn't be. We're demolition. Jeez. Hey, you guys the booker for the match you guys are gonna have? I'm not having any more matches. Now that. It was enjoyable. I, I look back at my career and I feel very fortunate I had as many years. Uh, I'm sure we did some certain things the same way all the time, but it doesn't jump out at me now. What, what was nice is you really didn't uh, have to worry that your opponent was going to hurt you because we were so lucky to work with the best guys ever. So. You know, it, it was just warming up in the dressing room and talking and doing whatever you had to do and not have that in the back of your mind that, you know, if somebody slams you and drops a leg on you, you're not going to cave your head in. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was nice to be working with the best guys in the world. Thank you, guys. To extrapolate, can I extrapolate on just for a second? Of course, sir. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> Talks are born. Uh, where we where we did uh, the same thing every night was in the ring, and I don't mean the same exact moves. I mean the moves that we did we did in the same way, because that way otherwise it, it was it would look like uh, uh, five or six drunk, drunk monkeys out there messing with each other. In order to have a you know a, a, to tell the stories that we were trying to tell, uh, you had to coordinate. And, uh, and then that means that we were trained the same way. I was talking about with my boys coming, my son coming down here today. I never saw, and I always wondered why the fans never ever noticed this. Did you ever notice anybody grab another wrestler by his right arm? Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If somebody did it, yeah. Dr. Death grabbed me by my right arm in the, in the Orient Superdome, and he was about six months in the business, and he was so nervous, he snatched me up on my right arm. And, I mean, I didn't know what to do. Right. <laughs> so I, said, I, well, I cried, and then I begged, and then... Uh, he fear, went, fear went through you. Well, he went to throw me over the, uh, into the ropes. I went over the ropes and out to the middle of the audience and screamed at the referee, tell him to calm down. <laughs> I'm not going to kill him, but tell him not to kill me. <laughs> uh, well, I've always wondered, I mean, who actually started the, the habit of working to the left side in professional wrestling? How did that get started that way? Well, most people are right-handed, and so your, 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 your balance is, uh, is more on the right side of your body, keeping your balance. I feel sorry for left-handed guys, you know, because the balance problem would be, uh, would be uh, harder for them. But uh, yeah, I like. I never understood where. I, I don't know where uh, K Fade came from, or uh, or Baby Face. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it's. I would like to know. 
sorry. No, no problem at all. That's You're supposed questions. to be asking questions, not me. I guys down there and we're like to ask. Yeah. My name's Keith. Uh, this is a question for everybody. Who is the one opponent you guys absolutely dreaded to get in the ring with? Well, I tell you, I, I don't think I've. Uh, <laughs> I, I really. There wasn't really anybody, I don't think. I mean, there were some guys that were a little bit harder to, to work with than others, but, you know, you're. You know, I, ne I never really went through that where it was, God, I just don't even want to go in this ring tonight. Because I think it was like I could always handle myself, or, you know what I mean? Uh, do you ever get into that? I, I don't recall anybody. Maybe a couple of tag teams, maybe we did. Well, there's a couple of tag teams yeah. we won't mention. Oh, come on, drop <laughs> one day. Uh, there was Joe's for one of them. <laughs> not, not Raymond, Joe. Yeah. And it wasn't because he couldn't wrestle. It was just his uh, his attitude and how he approached it. It was, a, you know, this business is give and take. And there's quite a few guys in there, and I think everybody here will tell you, there's a lot of take tape guys. Well, unless you can really take it, you're not going to get it. Because there's a resistance level. Because you and I are in there, and we prided ourselves, we tried to, have the best match on the card that night. Now, we weren't successful every night, but that was our objective, to go out and have the best match. Well, there's give and take there. You know, and if you're working against guys that are they're thinking about themselves or their own team above they, you. They wanted to get over. Yeah, and they're not going to get over unless you help them get over. Matter of fact, they're probably going to get worse because you're not going to do anything with them before. Uh, and I felt sorry for Raymond because Raymond was a, a seasoned veteran, but Jacques got stuck on himself a lot. Uh, Consequently, we didn't have, we never came back during matches with them, I think, and said, boy, that was a good one. <laughs> we came back and said, that's done. <laughs> but most of the guys, everybody, other than that, we'd come back and, well, that was really good, you know. That's, uh, that's the objective, to entertain the fans. Because the more they're happy, when they come back, more people make word about, they buy more seats, our pay goes up. So it's a business, that's all. Uh, there's, uh, there's guys in the business that uh, and big names. And I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna name anybody who's not still around because they can't defend themselves, but there's guys who are very big names and so being booked with to work with them. Uh, is it's good in terms of, of your of your pay. However, a lot of times they have a routine that they do. Their match is almost the same thing every night. And for me personally, uh, I like to try to tell a story in the ring. And it was hard to do with people who we talked about it earlier, though, people who yeah. believe their own publicity and believe they really are tough and whatever. And they had a, re a regular routine. They would do it the same way every night. And if you watch seven nights in a row, you would notice against seven different opponents, they would do basically the same, maybe not exactly the same order, but the timing would be the same. The length of the match would generally be the same. And I hated working, uh, I hated working with guys like that because, first of all, 
their charisma was based on, I mean, I'm not saying Hulk Hogan's one of these guys. But if I took Hulk Hogan in a match with Hogan, I never worked with him, but if I had taken him and put him down like with an arm lock and put him down on space in, in the middle of the ring and kept him there for like 10, 15 minutes, maybe let him up, pull the hair, put him back down, I would have killed him. I mean, it would have been hard. I mean, I don't mean personally, but it would have hurt his, his, his uh, drawing power. And his drawing power influenced my ability to make money, too. So you couldn't do that. So the reason I didn't like working with these guys is because I was handcuffed. I had to do it their way. And I felt like I just went out there and I was just a foil to what they were doing. I wasn't able to put any of my, my uh, psychology or my timing or my ideas about how to even enhance their act. Uh, or their shtick. I, I don't want to use that word act, but because these guys believed it. But but how to enhance to make the match better? Very difficult to work with. And I had I had one or two of these guys uh, say the most unbelievably horrible things to me that you could imagine. Uh, after one match, I'm bleeding down to my waist, and uh, a guy came back and asked me about the house I'd worked with. Asked me about the house, and I, it, the house is great. The week before, it had been a two-ring battle royal with Andre the Giant. We fought, he and I followed this match in a cold match. No, the TV, they hadn't seen anything between us on TV. And we drew almost the same, a little bit less, but, but still, a great house. And that was probably due to him, but I did have something to do with it. And uh, when I told him that the house was down a little bit, this guy said to me, I, 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 I don't think I've told you guys, this guy said to me, well, listen, I'm in the big leagues now, and if you can't measure up, I'll get somebody else. He was dead serious. I couldn't believe it. I thought he was ribbing me. And uh, it's against the code of the boys to, you know, go grab somebody and you know, readjust their attitude. <laughs> it's really bad. It would be horrible for me to do. I had people afraid of me anyway just because I, I'm an Olympian. I could wrestle. The guys were afraid I would snatch them or whatever if I got upset. There wasn't a chance of that, you know. Amateur wrestling and pro wrestling are two completely different things, and they're both great. They're only way, but they are different. And so I would never bring amateur wrestling into pro wrestling except to defend myself or stick up for the business. If there was a smart aleck out there who was, you know, right high about the business, I would you know, use stuff I learned to show him that, okay, you might, uh, let me try this front face lock on you and see if you still feel the way. That you were talking a minute ago, but that was a, that was the problem I had was with guys that were uh, and again you had to weigh okay I'm going to make a good payoff here because I'm in a main event with this big star a big name but by the same token I didn't feel like I felt like I was a bit player because I had to just go along and I wasn't a bit player I worked all over the world and I could work with whoever it was and do I worked in front of them. 200,000 people in Baghdad, Iraq, and uh, uh, they wanted to kill me after the match, and I managed to survive that. So um, anyway, that was, uh, that was, I'm an old man, I haven't had anybody talk to me. That's interesting. Uh, well, my, I was, I'm kind of like a smash down there. I didn't really have too many problems with with guys. It was, but I, I can give you two names that, I didn't 
hate working with them, but they were just hard to work with in the ring for me. One was uh, in the world class, Kevin Von Erich, and the reason was he was just wild in the ring. He never knew which way he was going to come. He never would call anything. I'd be in the corner. He'd just jump in with knees and fists and this and that. And it was basically a bar fight. It would be just like you'd go in the bar and start a fight with somebody. And you either fought them back or you just got destroyed. They would eat you up and, and you'd just be destroyed. So I learned quickly in, in, in world class with the Von Erich boys that you, you had to fight them back. I mean, honestly, sometimes it was almost like a real fight, a fist fight with them, you know. And that was every night with him guys. But Kevin was the worst because he was just wild. He just wouldn't call anything. He would just jump on you and just like a big spider all over you, you know. So, you know, for me that was hard because, I, you know, I wanted to kind of know what's going on a little bit, you know. And uh, the other guy had wasn't no problem. He was over like a son of a gun. He drew tons of money, especially for Bill Watts, was Junkyard Dog. And, uh, you know, he's no longer with us, but... I love the guy, it was, you know, but ring-wise, he just didn't, he really didn't have the mobility in the ring to do too much. You kind of had to work a circle, basically. Wherever he was, you had to stay on him, and he let him do his punches and things like that, you know. And then, of course, you know, most of the time, he'd give you the big thump. What he has was finished was a big thump, but mobility-wise, you know, you wouldn't go be doing no big turnbuckles or anything like that. So basically, you basically worked right to him, and everything was right to him you know he couldn't follow you out of the ring and thing. he just didn't have that mobility but over wise he was over like a son of a gun drew tons of money you know all over the for the wwf and of course bill watts you know uh, everybody knows that but you know i didn't hate working with him but it was a it was a hard night to work with him you made money with him right i did make money with him. he appreciated it didn't he uh, i hope so <laughs> I, I did but you know, what i'm talking about he appreciated you working with him him over, right? I hope so. I got him. You didn't, you didn't ever have a chance to talk to him about it? Well, uh, Bill, we didn't, you know. In Mid-South, we was always kind of, yeah, you know, how yeah, strict that yeah, was. Yeah. But uh, WWF was totally different, but it was the same way there. I mean, I heard a story that it, uh, about Terry Funk. Terry Funk actually quit the company because they was programmed with Junkyard Dog. And Jimmy Hart said it one morning, Terry Funk woke up and said, I can't take it no more, Jimmy. I'm going home. I can't take Junkyard Dog no more. And he just packed his bags and left the company. That's what I heard. Jimmy, tell me the story. But that was it for me. That's all. You know, other than that, I, everybody I worked with was, was just good. He just said those couple of guys were a little, a little bit harder in the ring. It was dread work. Is that how you yes. work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that was, that was my answer. Come on. No, uh, I didn't have a dread working with anybody. I guess same thing. The bar fight type situation. You ever heard of the Necro Butcher? Oh yeah, I have. Well, me and him yeah. promoted for whatever reason. Probably 2001 or 2000. 2001. Me and him got in a match against each other and. It felt like I had been in a fight. It felt like if I had a black eye, knocked three of my teeth out in the first time we ever fought. And uh, I thought that was really rough. That was like a fist fight. That was all it was. Crowd liked it, promoters liked it. I started getting bookings against them everywhere. We started fighting all over the US against each other. 
So, well, you didn't go to the guy and go, you know, this is a work, you know, we got <laughs> to survive out here, it's a work, I mean. <laughs> I just gave it back to him, you know, I just, yeah, he lit me up, I let him up. Oh, really? Did he pay for your new teeth? No. <laughs> no. But yeah, I mean, we got to be good buddies and we just knew that was, we fight each other. So we that's what you expected, yeah. right? You said that first time. It was going to be a fight, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty brutal. Um, yeah, I... I kind of haven't come across a situation where I've dreaded being in the ring with somebody, but it helps that like I'm pretty big and I'm very well versed in amateur wrestling as well, so I don't really worry. But as far as like what you're saying, when I so I started in uh, NXT Performance Center pretty young, and once you're there, like you're kind of immediately viewed as like one of the superstars. You're mute, viewed as a coworker, so you kind of have to hold yourself. To like a co-worker standard and you'd have all these huge main roster stars come in and just pick people out of a ring just to go work out with um and maybe like two months into nxt uh big show was coming back after after some arm injury that he had and just he just grabbed me he's like big guy come on and just took me over to a separate ring just to you know just like a 50% match and just go just so he could start getting his win back. And I think that's probably the most nervous I've ever been in the ring. It's just like I was so young and like I wanted to impress him, but like I wasn't sure. Like I was just double guessing myself on every single move um, and just being in there with like just someone I've respected. And I, you know, I grew up watching. So I, I guess that'd be my answer for that. Like I don't really dread anything, but I do, I still get really nervous when especially when it's people that I grew up, you know, admiring and watching. We have plenty of questions. Long-haired gentleman in the back there. You got a, you got a question? Jimmy Lee, <coughs> I want to thank each and every one of you for what you did. You know, you're real inspiration. You're former inspiration to me. Not so much you two. No, but uh, I got to brother. You guys helped inspire me. I sought the education for this to Charlie Fulton and uh, Kid Collins, which now today I pass that knowledge down gentlemen like these do and uh, so I just want to first thank you and uh, which Fulton got his name kind of a nod to Charlie so that was, you know, he wanted to be gracious for that uh, I just want to thank you for all you did and uh, you were an inspiration to me not selling Mark but it is what it is funny story about Axe we worked each other in a lumberjack match back in the 90s late 90s and uh, he threw me out and lumberjacks were out there I think he was even a lumberjack maybe so we beat the living heck out of me Get back in the ring. Axe puts me in the chill and says, Man, you owe them guys money or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back in here with you. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Great question. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I just wonder um, do you guys know before the match who's supposed to win? I mean, is that what you decided? We can't tell you that. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd say right away, yes, we, it's all. You know, it's entertainment, of course, you know. Yes, we're supposed to know who wins, but it always don't work out that way in the ring. Somebody has an injury or something, you have to work on the fly, as they say, you know. Sometimes it changes, but yes, we, we do have a set finish for the match, usually, most of the time. That's what I said. I don't know about you, is that right? Or any other well, way you want to put it? Uh, that's correct. However, how you get to that place, right, uh, right is where our skill comes out. Because uh, you can get there a variety of ways. You 
admit. And that's, you know, people say, well, it's all a choreographed dolphin, is it? Uh, the last part uh, is known. But even that part, people do different ways. Uh, but to get to there, sometimes the matches are 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, you know, close to an hour before you do that, uh, that scripted finish. And how you get there, how you build up to that to make it work, they take it, make it the simplest kind of a, of, of, of when. It's the very simplest kind of a, just a small package or something. If you did it in the first 10 seconds of the match, it would mean absolutely nothing. After uh, 40 minutes of back and nip and tuck, regressive uh, combat between each other, that kind of move will get people jump up in the air and throw their popcorn boxes and cokes and everything. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular like um, hit them with an ax and then smash them again. <laughs> but um, um, so yeah, but and if the rest of this is couldn't exist any other way. Uh, mixed martial art artists, mixed martial art fighters, they don't work six days a week, or have fights six days a week. They fight they have six in a year, because they, are, they really are hurting each other, and, and trying to hurt each other. I mean, not, not, I don't mean maliciously, but as part of the, of the sport. And it takes weeks to months sometimes, especially if the elbow gets dislocated or whatever, it takes time to recover after that. The way the, way the business evolved, the business started as a shoot on the carny. When I say a shoot, in real. The carny wrestler would invite people from the audience to come and challenge them. And though there was nothing scripted about those finishes. But it, those became so popular once TV came in that promoters said, we want to have wrestling. We're going to have it on Friday nights. Well, Friday night wasn't enough. Okay, we'll have Saturday. Now we want it Sunday. Now we want it every night. Now we don't want it just on national TV, we want it all over the country. There's no way you can wrestle a real match every night for a week and, and make it to the end of the week. Much less, do you, you ever keep track of how many matches you, match matches you wrestle in one year? In 365 days, he very likely might have wrestled 450 matches because he had to do TV. And that's Yeah, he might have wrestled 450 matches. There's no way you can do that if you're out there, you know, active, actively fighting each other. And the other ingredient is, if you are, it is a shoot match where two guys are really trying to beat each other, absolutely stinks. <laughs> it is so boring. People, people, Hawking, Hennel, got into the dressing room in the army one time, the Road Warriors. They got to beef with each other. They had it down in like kind of a double front face lock, just down there for like 15 minutes. I broke them up one time, and uh, uh, I came back 15 minutes later, and they were back there again. And two or three, John, and some of the guys are standing around. I said, I said, why are you guys not going to still do this? Why don't you do something, break it up? He said, well, we've broken up three times. But they were just, they were just sitting there. Just nothing was happening. If they'd have done that when the road warriors, when they first went out there, you guys, when you first went out there, if you grabbed a hold or somebody grabbed a hold, you got down their mat for 15 minutes, you think you'd have got to look like you did? Absolutely not. The road warriors, when they went out in their mat, it was boom, bang, I mean, bang, boom, 
one, two, three. And uh, the, the, the Vince McMahon of WWE in 1989 told everybody sports entertainment. That was basically, it's a nice word. We hate the word fake. I got, this, this, this is a fake shoulder, this replacement, it's not my real shoulder. But the reason it's there, because my real shoulder got messed up and destroyed doing all that fake wrestling I did, and this one too, and this hip. So we don't like that word because it, it has a connotation of like you're a snake oil or something. We're skilled artisans, and um, there's, there's an ingredient that the only people that have it in, in, in our country are the Army Rangers. If a wrestler's in trouble, you're going to hate the guy's guts. If he's in trouble, everybody on the car goes to his rescue, whether it be in the ring, the parking lot, wherever it is. They run out, I'm talking about with guns going off, knives being flashed, everybody is an ethical code in our business. You go out and you protect, we protect each other. Some kid who just broke in that night, his first match, you go out and protect him just like he was your brother. That's an ethical code that's not there in many businesses. Very, very few. Army Rangers leave no man behind, they'll do it. Our stuff wasn't quite as lethal as that, but to have the guts to run it out into a full-blown riot in Puerto Rico, when everybody's up with chains and, and chairs and chairs are flying and knives are being flashed, and you run out there to go down and save the life or to save the health and get, to keep your, your mate from being hurt, it takes guts. And an ethical code I'm proud to have been part of. Uh, people say, ah, oh, wrestling is bad, bad. No, it's got a lot of depth to it that people don't see. Uh, and the reason I go on link, I'm sorry, because I don't want you to feel diminished by knowing that, that there was um, a show business aspect to what we did. Thank you for the question. Very good. Thank you. Uh, my friend, you got a question? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, Demolition. How was it working with Crush? Uh, Crush was a was a nice guy. He was a great guy. Uh, yeah. I, there were circumstances where I was going to move from the team to a behind the scenes job, and uh, the the reason they brought Crush in, in the first place, I had an allergic reaction to shrimp dinner, which had developed over years and years and years of me going to Japan. I went to Japan for 16, 17 years, 12, 15 weeks a year, and I was eating shrimp and all kind of shellfish, and I developed a toxic reaction. Well, I had one piece of shrimp just before WrestleMania, and went into a fucking shot. So they brought in Crush as a replacement because they knew I was supposed to move and he was going to take my spot. He was uh, a lot, we call him in the business greener because he wasn't as experienced. He was willing to learn and wanted to learn, but we had a, <coughs> when people think of demolition, they think of acts and smash, you know, like the road board. We brought Crush in. And there was a lot of pressure on him because he wasn't as polished in the ring, his ring work, not because he couldn't do it, but he needed to take time. But 
he was thrown from Oregon, where he was just working periodically, to worldwide main events. And he felt it, right? Felt yeah. pressure. Yeah. And then he would screw up and make a mistake. And then, of course, some of the guys said, they don't make mistakes, they don't do this. You're screwing up. But we never said that. And then when we got our promos, you're doing promos. We were talking gang, what you do promos from nine in the morning till midnight, two days a week. Boom, 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 boom. And we prided ourselves, they tell us where we're gonna be, who we're gonna go against, that's all we need. And we cut it in one cut. Well, he'd flub up, and then again, the agent would say, all right, cut, you know, they put pressure on him. So he was under an intense amount of pressure that he wasn't ready for. But as a guy, he was a great friend of ours. You know, unfortunately, he died too soon. It was uh, really, really tough on him because there was Axon Smash who, for you know, six, seven, eight years, every night wrestling, everybody knew who we were. We were the tag team, and all of a sudden, somebody else comes in and replaces part of that tag team. It was a terrible position for him to come in. I mean, it was it was great, but you could have had somebody that was over more than anything and put in that position and still couldn't have replaced Axe from Axe and Smash. So it was a really hard position for him to, to fill. And he did a great job for what he did. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of good good matches, a lot of good times and everything. He was a good guy to travel with, Yeah, because uh, we had our routine. We'd go to the gym, we'd stay at certain. You know, we're on the road. And we learned years ago, I learned this from the guy who brought up my head. Uh, you're your product. You're what you're selling. So if you don't get, take care of that product, you're not going to be selling them. So we'd stay in good hotels. We drove good automobiles, comfortable automobiles. Worked out and had good meals. And consequently, that kept our, our motor running. And a lot of guys didn't do that. They'd break down because there were you know, four or five guys in the room. They skip a meal here, and they don't want to do this. But we were demolition, some of demolition. Like, these guys are all selling their own product. If you don't take care of your product, they're not going to be on the shelf long. So, but as far as Crush, it was, uh, it was traumatic to hear about his death. Uh, you know, in a lot of places we go, unfortunately, They'll ask, where's Crash? I say, he'd love to be here. You know, he'd love to be here with us. So we'd love to have him. All right, friend, back. What, this is a question for the whole panel. What would you guys consider the proudest moment of your career? Well, so we'll start down this way. We'll start with Batman Fulton and work our way down. Right. Um. As far as pride goes, uh, I went through a lot during my release from WWE and just kind of the circumstances that led to it made me really question myself as an athlete and as a, as a professional wrestler. Um, so to be able to have taken the road uh, that I have to work back to build up my own name and then not only to sign and debut with Impact, but uh, just to go back and to watch like 
the clip of my debut is not only their most watched thing in the last two years, but as well as seeing like my counterparts uh, from Sanity and everything going on with them, like brought it brought a lot of pride to myself knowing that I could work that hard and just kind of recreate myself after taking such a huge blow. So I'd say probably my debut with Impact right now, anyways. Wrestling for the first time in Corken Hall in Tokyo, Japan. That's it. Not going to elaborate on it at all. Wrestling sober in 2013 for the first time. That was more important to me. From like uh, an accomplishment early in my career, going over to Tokyo and wrestling, that was great. But I think in 2013, I thought I was done wrestling. 2012, when I said I'm done wrestling, wrestling's a trigger for me. It's one of the outlets where I use. Uh, and then getting sober and going back and doing it again, because it was something I loved to do. So that's probably the greater accomplishment, is returning to the ring sober. Uh, for me, I guess uh, I'm similar to that. I, I never had any problems. That's what I'm proud of, that I survived professional wrestling. Never took any drugs, illegal drugs. I never become an alcoholic. I'm still with the same wife for 35 years. professional wrestling and so for me that's my biggest proudest thing just survive the business where so many guys just couldn't survive it uh, my proudest uh, two of moments are were failures uh, I twice tried to uh, create a union for pro wrestlers uh, baseball football basketball professional sports it all unionized and all the athletes became went from being slaves, being uh, chattel, being at the beck and whim of, of uh, the promoters, uh, their owners, to being uh, men in their own rights, who had rights, and all, all of a sudden their, their, in, their incomes increased exponentially. Uh, not just double, I'm talking about, but the second or third power, they went from making 50,000 a year to making $5 million a year in a couple of years. Uh, we tried, I tried twice, not by myself, I had wrestlers that helped me, uh, to start, start unions, uh, start a union for, for wrestling. Uh, had contacted unions who would uh, accept us as a chapter. And uh, one was the, uh, coincidentally, it was where I went to college, SIU, Southern Illinois University, was also the letters for Siemens International Union. Uh, out of Tampa, Florida, for at least the branch I talked to, uh, would accept us as a union, which meant that anywhere there was water where a boat could go, uh, there would be union. The, the union would have be effective there, where the Russians would have some rights in terms of say so about how uh, they were treated. I don't know if many of you saw this. It was on uh, 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 the news last week. Uh, with John, uh, you see that? John, Oliver. John Oliver. He talked about that situation that, that for the first time, but we've all known it for years. Wrestlers are listed as uh, individual contractors. That way the promoter doesn't have to pay for uh, unemployment, for health insurance, 
Uh, but the, 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 the uh, definition of an independent contractor is you work when you want to, and you have a choice, but pro wrestlers have no choice about where they're going or when they're going to be booked. They have to do what they're told. So the promoters made millions for years, and the wrestlers, you know, glad to have a job. Uh, but many guys complained about it. I tried to do something about it. Uh, it didn't work out, but I'm proud to have tried. I've, I've had a lot of uh, proud moments. I'll, I'll piggyback with, with Gang. Probably the, the best situation we've been in this business for years and years, like I said, starting in 1974. And I have the same wife that I had before I got into business. She was kind enough to let me dabble in it because I didn't want to be a, I was a high school teacher and coach before that. Got approached about getting in wrestling. And tossed it back and forth in my mind and I didn't want to be in a situation five years down the road, 20 years down the road saying, you know, what if I'd have tried that? So I approached her. She supported me, and when I first started, we were making $25 in a match. We've had a good crowd, you'd make 50 and 75. Fortunately, she was a nurse, so she was paying all the bills. But she let me do it, and I probably tried to screw it up a number of times, but she stuck with me, so having my wife today is, is a, a proud moment for me. a professional wrestler your whole life is professional wrestling and I met my wife in Charlotte North North Carolina and, and I'm still married to her too so it's been 34 years and when you go on the road sometimes you're on the road for three weeks at a time four weeks you might go to Japan for five six weeks whatever so Bill and I are That's the four cell phones yeah no cell phones and it, it cost you a fortune to call home, so you didn't call home because you, you didn't make enough money to do that. But anyways, uh, we're in the WWF, and Bill and I are the tag team champions, and we're on the road for probably, I think it was about 60 days straight, one of those kind of a deal. And we're in Rockford, Illinois, and my wife's in Charlotte, Carolina, and is going to have a baby, my son. So I went to Vince. I said, uh, Vince, I said, my wife's going to, you know, have the baby tomorrow, um, I'm going to have to leave early in the morning and get there, and then we were still booked like three weeks after this TV show. He says, I'll tell you what, why don't you go on first? You guys go on first, go back to Chicago, fly out and get there and be there on time, and, you know, take take a day. You know, I'm like, a day? You know, I want a month. <laughs> anyways, so... We're on first in Rockford, Illinois, and we get to Chicago. We can't get a hotel room. And I got a flight like at six o'clock in the morning. So Bill, myself, and Fuji were sleeping in a car or an old motel, trying to get enough sleep so I can get the flight. I get home, then my wife didn't have the baby till 11.15 that next night. So when I saw my son, that was the greatest thing ever because you know, I wanted a son, and we went through all of this, and that's how it happened. So.
time for one more question. No pressure. Make sure it's a good one. All right. Get my jump in over there. Go ahead. I wanted to say, when, what was the hardest thing to get used to when you guys first got into the business? Just like the schedule, I'm assuming? Well, the schedule, you know, when you're involved in it, you're like in the forest and you see all the trees. You don't notice until you're out of the forest. Uh, you get up, you train, you get in the car, you travel, you get to the locker room like Bob said, an hour. It, you got to be there an hour. Some states, some cities have uh, commissions, so you got to get a physical. Uh, you have to be there so everybody knows you're there on time. And when we were in Georgia, there was no after your match. If you're in the first, second, third match, you would leave. No, no. You had to stay. Everybody had to stay until the last match was over because there was riots. So then you get back in the car and you travel home and you're driving 100 miles, 200 miles. If you're lucky, it's a 100 mile trip. Normally it's about 250 miles. You get back home, everybody else is sleeping. You get a couple hours sleep, you get back up the next morning, you go to the gym, you get in the car, you go to the next time. And you do that and do that and do that. And it was, I've got a story about my, my youngest daughter. We didn't get any days off. And if you got a day off, that was really strange. So, like all little kids, they want to run when the phone rings. They want to run and answer the phone. Well, the rule in the house was, when I come home, I drop the bags, give my wife hug and kiss. Daddy's not home. So the phone rings. My little daughter runs up. She picks up the phone. She says, Daddy, are you home? Are you not home? <laughs> Which meant somebody missed the match, and I'm back on the road again. Hey, one of the craziest things was that Louisiana territory, though. You know, when you had a car, and you know, you drive 300 miles to a town, and as soon as that's over, you drive 200 miles, stay in a hotel, and go another 200 miles to get to the town. You had to change the oil in your car every week. Every time you went home, you changed the oil in your car. You put on 50,000 miles just just like that. Wasn't it just, that was probably the most brutal territory. Yeah, it was, was brutal territory. For me, it was, I loved it because I was well, still young. You know, I was a young kid. I was still you know just come from the Poffos at ICE, from ICW. I was up there with Bob, and then Bob went to Mid South too. Then I came in the Mid South a little later, and to me, it was like you know. I'm, it's the greatest thing ever for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, even though I'm I'm sleeping in the car and stuff like that, and driving thousands and thousands of miles, but it's still, you know, these are it's the greatest thing in the world for me, you know, because that was my my dream job was to actually become a full-time professional wrestler where you could support yourself on that, you know, whatever they paid you, you know. So for me, that was the greatest thing ever. But like you said, it was a brutal, brutal territory to be in, and, and Bill was very, very strict. Had a set set of rules about, like you said, you had to be there before the show at a certain time, and and good guys, bad guys could not mingle at all. You you could be fired over that, you know, instantaneously. Uh, if you had an altercation at a bar, you better win that fight. If you're one of the Mid South wrestlers on TV, you better win the fight. If not, you don't have a job. You know, that's just rules he said he had. Which you know, I look back now, if people think he was you know, very strict. You know, he let me fines. 
But you run in a company, you've got to set rules for wrestlers because wrestlers will walk all over you. I don't. That's just the way wrestling. It's always been that way. Wrestlers will take it to the very limit. So if you run in a company, you better have some set rules and you better actually follow by them rules, you know. And Bill was very good at that, and he helped me a whole lot all through my career when I was in territories. Anytime I had spare time between Japan or another territory, because I went to a lot of territories, you know, because I was a big monster hill. And, and uh, you know, I didn't have skills like Bob or, you know, wrestling skills. I was just a big monster heel that, you know, they put me in with baby faces, you know. So I was always, you know, about a year here, a year, you know, in the Carolinas. Then I'd go to Florida for a year and a half or two years. Then I'd go somewhere else. But Bill would always bring me back, you know. Anytime I had two weeks off, and he'd bring me back in and put me on the cards and make sure I got some good paydays or in between Japan tours, he'd bring me back, put me on cards and got me some good paydays, you know, because my name was already well known in that area, so I'd be automatically put in the main event, you know, like with Jim Duggan or people like that. We'd do, I'd come in as a bounty hunter or we'd do loser league town matches, you know, I'd pull up with you all. Uh, who's that? <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was always a joke. When you, that was always the big joke when you leave the territory. You always do the loser leave town, but you pull up to the building in a U-Haul truck. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, you know, like you said, it was it was a hard territory, but I, I really I enjoyed it myself. It was it was character building for me, and it really uh, Bill really helped you know get my career going, you know, and then. Basically, you know, because of the style they had in that territory, I fit perfect with it. So what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> hardest part? Uh, uh, the hardest part of being, like, beginning of, like, what you're getting used to? In the yeah, it wasn't nothing hard. Business. To me, it wasn't hard at all. I mean, I was, you know, I never had any fear about going to the ring. It would be 100,000 people out there. I, I've always felt comfortable about going. People talk about being nervous and stuff. I, I never felt nervous, even when I went to WWF, WrestleManias and stuff. I, to me, it was just another, it was just another wrestling match, another work day, you know. And I enjoy going out there, and that's what I, you know, I'd always dreamed of doing. And it was just, I love going out there and entertaining people, you know. I'm like, like he said, you try to have the best match, you, you know, hopefully on the card. Mine never was, but you know, you still go out there, and you know, I just enjoyed it, you know. No matter who I was working against, whether there's top stars like these guys or you know some nights I'd be in opening match with Hillbilly Jim you know but still it was to me it was fun I enjoyed it you know I just enjoyed doing it but after a while in WWF it was just got to be a grind I mean it was brutal uh, you heard them guys talk about 60 days on the road and you know, it's ain't 60 days of getting in a car and making a little loop and getting to come back home this is 60 days of traveling with your clothes and traveling with about a 50 pound wrestling bag with all your wrestling gear. Then you gotta go to the airport, wake up at five in the, always early flights, five o'clock in the morning because in case things happen, they'd always book us early flights. Get on a plane, listen to everybody, people, uh, British Bulldog would be in the back, OMG, OMG, wake up, OMG. <laughs> so you fly to town, you get off the plane, grab up all your luggage, tote all that. Go, hopefully you get a rental car if you've made reservations. If you didn't make reservations, you're out of luck. Get to go find a, you know, wherever you let's find a hotel to stay at. 
let's go grab a little food or something, you know, the, these guys go to the gym, I didn't really have to worry about that, but uh, you make your way to the building, half the time I didn't know where the buildings were, luckily I had Slick with me, he'd be my, you know, he'd always drive me because I'd be lost 100% of the time. You, get, you have to be at the building early, you get there, especially on TV days, it's all day long from, you know, 12 o'clock on, you know, till midnight, and you're at the building, you know, so then set the clock, get up next day, boom, like, it's just like uh, the movie, you know, uh, where the guy wakes up with the same thing every day. Every day the clock gets off, boom, get up, go to the airport, go to the next city, lay down, sleep, get up, go to the next city. It was constant. I was like, but, you know, honestly, I was, uh, you know, toward the end, before I left the company, I was about to go crazy. And uh, a couple of guys, I believe, did. Hercules actually got on a flight and didn't get off and went on home. He left and went home. They called him and, well, yeah, Hercules, well, I went home and, you know, but he came back. But he actually just left the tour and went home. <laughs> we, were, we were talking earlier today about uh, the same situation. You guys know Billy Jack Haynes, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Billy Jack was in a nice little small territory up there in Portland. Home every night. You know, you go 150 miles, you're back. You watch the evening news, you go 100 miles, back. First couple weeks he was in, and the gang was there. You know, he, you're in a big room like this, and you're doing promos all day. Gang, you're on, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, somebody from the office comes in, and they dump a big stack of airplane tickets on your desk, right beside you. So boom, 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 boom. Billy's looking at the thing. He says, "What's this?" He says, "That's our your itinerary for the next two weeks." And he was ready to go after the first week and a half. Oh man, <clears throat> that's true. They give you a stack like that, and the first thing, all the day, you know, like he says, before cell phones. So as soon as we get back to the hotel, <laughs> I was the uh, I was the reservation guy. So I'm on the fly. I go, oh, "What city we going to?" Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles, California, blah, blah, blah. hey, rental car, blah, 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 this hotel, you had to make reservations. If you didn't, you, you wouldn't get what you needed. It was like like a hundred, hundreds of reservations, you know. It was just, golly. Yeah. I mean, that just took the fun out of it for me. Territory days was fun because you drive, you have fun with the boys in the car, have some, you know, like that. But, man, yeah, WWF. Flying, flying you're up at 4.30 every morning. Every morning. Just, it was oh, brutal. I mean, I'm not saying the money. Yeah, of course, the money was good at times. It wasn't always great for me. I'm speaking for myself. I wasn't a, you know, 15-time tag team champion. But, uh, <laughs> 13. 13. 13 times. But, you know, I mean, I had good money, of course. Of course, when I work with Hogan, of course, that's that's. You know, I'm, I'm sure his money was way up above mine, but it should be because he's drawing the house, of course. You know, I'm just, I just have to be a person in there with him. But, yeah, the money was always better with him, and it was great with these guys because, you know, they were tag team champions. And, as to, you know, but at times, like I said, I, we wasn't, I wasn't, I'm just speaking for myself, I wasn't on guarantee money. I never, I never had guarantee money. Mine, you know, I was always paid whatever position I was on the card and according to the house. Now, it was times we'd go to Minot, North Dakota. You're in a 10,000-seat coliseum. There may be a 1,000 people at the show sometimes. You know, it wasn't always, you know, Hogan's shows was always great. But a lot of shows I went to for WWF, people think it was always sold out. That wasn't the truth, you know, because it was quite a, minute, quite a lot of shows. Like, and we'd go to the Dakotas or places like that. It was empty arenas, you know, and I'd get a paycheck. It'd be like, a, you know, $100. What the heck? And things like that. we we was able to take a draw every night, you know, off our money, you know, and 
sometimes at my paycheck, it would be like I'd owe them money. I'd be, what the heck? <laughs> but, uh, you know, people think it was great. You know, WWF, you'd be a superstar and all that. But uh, it was brutal, as, you, uh, as people should know, because I think guys came out being addicted to, you know, things and the alcoholics and lose their families and things. But it was no let-up. It was constant. It was, I mean, you... Don't get injured because you lose your spots, you know. Yeah, and it was just a brutal situation to be in. Like he said, it, we're independent uh, contractors, but yet I can't, you know, I was with WWF. I couldn't take a show with Japan or anything. I wasn't allowed to do that. So how are we independent? You know, that's, that's what you're talking about. So. But WWF was brutal, I'll tell you that. May I say something, whether it was a grind or what for you? You'd never be able to tell. I watched, no matter what part of your career you watch, it looked like you were having the time of your life. Oh, no. Well, of course, that's all of us. I mean, we were, we were beat to death and tired, and, and we were all grumpy behind the scenes a lot of times. But, yeah, I mean, once the actual curtain opens, the people that bought tickets, you know, they, they don't know what's happened. They don't know that we, you know, got stuck in the airport all day long and barely made it to the show. All they know is they bought tickets to see Demolition or... Akeem or whoever it happened to be, Big Boss Man, Bret Hart, whoever, they don't know that. So, I mean, you still got to go out there and, and do what you got to do, you know. And, you know, behind the scenes is a whole different thing. I and mean, like you said, our, our interviews, we didn't have scripted interviews, you know. So, like now, all of them scripted. Everybody knows the interviews are pretty much scripted. But we didn't have, like, writers and stuff that would give us scripted interviews. Or, you know, or, like he said, just tell me. Tell me where we're going to be at, who we're wrestling, what time, whatever day it was, and you basically get off the cuff. You basically do your own interviews, and like you said, with Crush, you know, he's a little green, and a lot of times, you know, you get when the cameras crank up, you know, a lot of guys freeze on them cameras. They can't come off the cuff like that and give an interview like a Roddy Piper or, or guys like that. You know, some guys are great at it. I was never the best at it myself, but I could come across because I had a certain character I could get across, you know. But, you know, when you're sitting there all day long and somebody floods the interview for three times, you're like, Jesus Christ, you know? Come on, man, I want to get to the dirt. And, and they hear that, right? Yeah, I want to get to the catering, man, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's basically our life on the road was just, you know, the same old thing, same grind every day. It's a little funny story, you know, it's, it's the boys in the car. We've all done it. And it's the, it's the 4th of July weekend. And you're driving to the town because you got to make it to the town. You bust your butt to get to the town. And you're going by all these homes. They're out there playing, badminton, <laughs> shooting, fires. <laughs> they're cooking. They're yeah. have, drinking beer. The guy's saying, gee, I wish I could do that. And then those same people go to the matches. And they say, gee, I wish I could do that. And so just for first of all. This is what I'd do. We'd be, I'd be driving on the road going to some town or something. I'd drive by a lake or something. It'd be a bunch of guys out there fishing. I'd say, man, look at them idiots out there fishing. One day in his car making a trip like me. Were you ever on that, were you ever on that show in, uh, it was in Reno, Nevada, that snowstorm? Went? When we all got stuck there, were you on that one? I was, I was yeah. out there, yeah, I was out there when we got stuck there. <laughs> Three days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, so the ring didn't show up or anything, so they ended up putting ropes around four chairs. We had to wrestle on the floor in the building, remember that? I wasn't on that one. Though. Oh, you weren't on that one? I always made it with the ring. Oh, the okay. only time I never had a ring, I did a tour, this is years later, it wasn't with a major company. 
We was in Australia, there wasn't, I was over there with the bushwhackers, there was no ring. Wherever the little town we went to, and we actually got up there, and, and I mean, we didn't have ropes, nothing, there was no ring. So we actually, I, I stepped over the thing like there's some ropes there, I was on the outside, come on, and then we hit the ropes, you know. People was like, yeah. And uh, the old, uh, Bushwhacker Luke always talks about that. Hey, mate, you remember that time we we didn't we didn't have no ring? We <laughs> there's some super guys too. And bushwhackers are crazy as heck. <laughs> you know, the uh, the harder the job, the richer the reward. And what we were talking about uh, the road and our, our my generation. These guys, uh, their careers went long past mine. Although we did share some at the same time, and that era was the Brotherhood of the Road. We didn't we didn't fly much, uh, of course. When you went to Japan, of course. But as far as traveling around the United States, so if you did spend an Amarillo from three o'clock Saturday afternoon from TV in Amarillo, Texas, till Monday night, if you got the bad loop, till Monday night when you checked into a, a motel at one o'clock in the morning in Odessa, Texas about 50, 56 hours, 1,750 miles. You're in, a, I, I had this romantic retro hippie thing, had long hair and I bought a Volkswagen van. Volkswagen vans don't go fast. <laughs> you put it at 70, it doesn't want to cooperate. So doing that at 55 miles an hour, I, it, it did have a bed in it, which was very convenient because I, I had to live in it. But the point is, if you get to the town after doing all that, you've only got five minutes, you're not gonna go out there and lay around and loaf and show and complain. You're gonna go out there, that's what you spent all those miles doing was to get there. So once you do get there, you're gonna go out there for your 10 minutes, whatever it might be, 45, and you're gonna give it your all to make all that other stuff worthwhile. I mean, if you have any self-respect as a, you know, as someone who's working to feed your family and to make a name for yourself. So, uh, but yeah, that's 1,750, oh my God. And talking, you live in, you, we lived in, we lived in the vans. We lived in, or we lived in our, in our vehicles. Uh, but, uh, you forget all that. You remember the good stuff. <laughs> well, he's talking about, he's talking about his, his son being born. This is my story about my son. Uh, 1984, uh, my wife, you go have a baby and uh, we'll go to the doctor and the doctor goes, well, you know, she's going to get C-section because she's small, you know, couldn't have it naturally, so. And uh, the doctor goes, well, he's going to be on a certain date or whatever, and, and uh, I think my wife says, well, he's leaving on to go to Japan tour on, you know, November 19th, and the doctor said, what? He said, yeah, he's got to go to Japan, so he won't be here, and he goes, oh, we can't have that, so. She, they set it up and she had a C-section on November 19th. I took all my bags to the hospital, you know, to, for my Japan tour. Then uh, stayed one night, she, you know, she had the baby. And then one night, the next morning, her dad, you know, took me to the airport at, you know, bright and early, six o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I was like seven weeks in Japan. And, uh, you know, <laughs> most people, most wives, they leave you right then. You know, when I got back, you know, I walk in the house, there's my son. Hey, you my dad? You know, my dad. That's a long tour. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Two times I went to Japan, I came home, my wife bought a different house. Went, Where are we going? Well, we got a new house. Uh-huh. I'll teach you to go to Japan. I don't know if you, if you guys remember Roberto Soto. 
So I was I was going to Japan. He and I were on tour. We were at the airport, and we go on the tour. We're there eight weeks. Well, in the meantime, my wife sold a house, bought a house, and moved. So we're coming back to the Atlanta airport. He says, Bill, he says, you've got a puzzled look on your face. I said, eight weeks ago, I knew where I lived. <laughs> now my wife has moved. I don't know the phone number, because they didn't, it's not like today. When you took your house phone, it changed. I said, I don't know where I live. I don't know the phone number. And if she don't come and pick me up, I don't know where I'm But we like, I mean, me personally, I don't know about it. You know, I, I like Japan because you were taken better care of in Japan than you yep. were in the United States yep. for promoters. I mean, all you, trans, you didn't have to worry about transportation because they have a huge, you know, company bus. I mean, hotels are taken care of. I mean, so yep. in Japan, you were taking, you were taken well care of as a performer, you know, a lot better than the United States. Plus, you had guaranteed money. I mean, it was, you went on guarantees. You wouldn't work in how many people's in the building or whatever, you know. So, first class. Yeah, it was always always first class deal in Japan. That's why so many guys really wanted to go there and make a career of it, you know. Sometimes you didn't need to go through customs. The, the uh, wrestling organization would uh, come on the plane and get your, uh, or you would get off the plane and go on, get on the tour bus. They would collect your, uh, your passports. And you never had to go through customs yourself. They would, uh, I, I only made four, I did not wish man, I did 16 trips, would have been great. I only made four trips, but uh, never went through customs there. That's nice, you know, it's a, you know, it's not a big deal, but it was, uh, they, it's first class. You know, you felt like a VIP. Uh, and you come back, you come back to this country, if you think you could get a local promoter to meet you at that point, you know, <laughs> you better have a thousand dollar bill waiting for him to get that. <laughs> and well, my my first tour in Japan, uh, you know, I, you know, luckily I got to team up with Bruiser Brody, you know, because we kind of had similar looks, you know, and uh, and Bruiser, you know, he was going to the ring. I didn't I didn't know nothing about his gimmick really in Japan, you know, because we didn't have like YouTube's and stuff, you know, but. He said, okay, just follow me, you know, follow me, gang, and I'll, I'll show you what to do. So he busts through the door, kicks that door on me, he's got that chain, yeah, he's screaming, yeah, I mean, he's hitting people with his chain. And he said, you know, he told me, he said, just follow me, and I got, I wear glasses, I can't see for nothing out there, and the building is kind of dark. So I get in the ring, and I'm looking, there's no Bruiser Brody, he's way up in the stands up there, stomping around like Godzilla, scaring people away, you know, and then he finally makes his way back to the ring, he goes, well, where were you? I said, man, I can't keep up with you, and, and uh, he, he threw this one Japanese guy in, he said, watch this, he jumped up and dropped and kicked that kid, man, he about took his head off of that drop kid, he said, it's the way you got to do it, gang, it's the way you got to do it, and I'm like, wow. I mean, it was just amazing just to see him work. I mean, to actually see that man in Japan, you know, in the States, he was, you know, he was impressive in the States, but Japan was a whole different level for him and, and Stan Hansen. It was unbelievable. I got to team up with Stan. Here's my Stan Hansen story. Me and Stan, you know, teaming up as a team. You know, they, we'd, we'd have to, you know, all during the tour, we'd team up with different guys, but I got to team up with Stan Hansen. He's got bad vision, too. He, he wears, you know, glasses or whatever. So we was in this gymnasium and, and the dress rooms, right before you go out, there's a little lip on the doorway at the bottom, you know, like a little ri riser thing. And he goes, okay, he said, okay, let's go. His music, that crazy music he started, he had that lariat thing, he 
swings around and he's like, okay, gang, let's go. He went to stomp out the door and the toe of his boot got caught on that little lip and he went flat down on the mat. And I walked right over him. I said, come on, Stan, let's go. <laughs> he jumped up and put that cowboy, you son. <laughs> well, with that, guys, this has been an awesome Q&A session. Can we get one more round of applause? guys will be here for a little while. They're going to go back to the tables. Yeah, you're welcome to come around, get autographs signed. You want to bring Dylan out and take a picture with him? Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Dylan. Hi, Mike. You get a good one. Are you getting a picture with me? Dylan, Dylan. <laughs> right in the middle. Get over here and smile right now. All right. <laughs> okay, ready? One, two, three. Got it. <laughs> All right. One more time. Give a round of applause for Austin.